Let's face it, no one wants to talk about mental health. The topic has many stigmas. Many people are afraid to share with coworkers because they worry about being judged or worse, that they could lose their jobs. Even friends and family are often left in the dark and aware of how symptoms and conditions of such as depression and PTSD affect daily lives. News, television programs and films often show people with mental illnesses as dangerous. Research shows news outlets are more likely to cover dramatic crimes committed by people with mental illness instead of similar crimes done by those who are not formally diagnosed. According to the World Health Organization, in 2019, one in every eight people or 970 million people around the world were living with a mental disorder, with anxiety and depressive disorders being the most common. And that rose in 2020 by about 26 to 28 percent because of the pandemic. While effective prevention and treatment options exist, most people with mental disorders do not have access to effective care. Many people also experience stigma, discrimination, and violation of human rights. What can you do to help reduce mental health stigma? Well, according to the researchers, there is a few ways, and one of them is educate yourself and others about mental illness, protest against unfair depictions of mental illness, and interact with people who experience mental illness. So for that reason, I have the pleasure of bringing to this podcast a very accomplished woman that is devoted to changing the conversation around mental health. Sarah Fay was diagnosed with six different mental health disorders and finding no relief led her to write her journalistic memoir, Pathological. She shares with us in this episode how our mental diagnosis created, what they're good for and what they're not good for, and that's part of the book, of this book, Pathological. We also talk the stigmas attached to mental health issues and how to help, how to switch the conversation around mental illnesses, how she uses reframing the symptoms she feels to help herself navigate better through crisis. We talk about whether social media has an effect on mental illnesses, and the answer will surprise you. How some mental illnesses can be cured. How do we measure success and a fulfilled life? Two questions she uses to not feel overwhelmed with society's pressure about success and recovery. The importance of family support and what she recommends for those that don't have it the importance of celebrating, what she currently does to deal with her panic attacks, the importance of recognizing your own signals, and so much more. These are conversations we need to have so we can all contribute to mental health. So let's get started. Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different life events? What influences them? 
My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. Today I have with me an award-winning author and mental health advocate working to move the conversation around mental health away from simplistic diagnosis and toward a deeper understanding of our mental health and emotional lives. Sarah faced personal experience of being diagnosed with six different mental health disorders and finding no relief led her to write her journalistic memoir, Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses, which was an Apple best book pick and the New York Times held as a fear manifesto of a memoir. Sarah has shared her story in NPR's Oprah Daily, Salon, WGN Morning News, NPR's Kara Think, The Rumpus, and the Los Angeles Times. The Pathological has been featured in Forbes, Mind Body Green, Thrive Global, Live Hub, Psychological Today, and more. Her devotion to changing the conversation around mental health, which I think is so important and such an important matter, also led her to create Pathological, the movement, a public awareness campaign devoted to giving people agency in their mental health treatment. Her writing appears in many publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic, Time Magazine, the Pettis Review, where she served as an advisory editor. Her essays have been chosen as a notable mention in Best American Essays and nominated for Pushcart Prizes. She is the recipient of the Hopwood Award for Literature, as well as grants and fellowships from Jadu, the Mellon Foundation, I'm sure I'm pronouncing some of them incorrectly, <laughs> and the McDowell Colony, among others. She is currently on the faculty at Northwestern University, so help me in welcoming my guest today, Sarah Fay. Welcome, Sarah. How Thank are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. My cat is noisy, so hopefully he will be quiet <laughs> for this. I told him for this hour, you have to be quiet, but he's unruly sometimes. He's watching us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thrilled to have you because I think these conversations are so important to have. And you wrote this amazing book where you share uh, like all your journey. And I feel like you're still around the journey and are going to share more with us in the future. But tell us a little bit about your story so that people that are listening can know more about you. Yeah, my pathological is, is about the six diagnoses that I received over my lifetime. And so when we talk about diagnoses, I mean, in the United States, we have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And sometimes people refer to that as psychiatry's quote unquote Bible. Um, and that just me, it started in 1952. And what it is, is it's just a book. And if you were to open the pages, you would see major depressive disorder at the top, and then you would see a list of symptoms trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, this or that. Um, and it would go down the list, and you would need a certain number of symptoms to qualify for the diagnosis. And so that's really what runs our mental health system uh, in this country. And it also filters out into other countries as well. So when you think about it, diagnoses are memes, you know, TikTok therapists diagnose people. So we're really a global psychiatric community in many ways. Um, I knew none of this when this started. So this started when I was 12. And 
Pathological also is really a cautionary tale about what can happen when a young person gets a mental health diagnosis and over-identifies with the negative aspects of it. And that's exactly what I did. So when I was 12, I hadn't been eating and I went on a class trip and I didn't eat for four days. And then I couldn't hold down food or water. And my parents rightly took me to the hospital. And there we saw my pediatrician eventually, and he put me on a scale. I had lost a great deal of weight. And he said, she has anorexia, a word I'd never heard before. And my parents had heard it, but knew nothing about it. They were terrified, of course, as parents would be. And so I had this terrible stomach ache and I wasn't eating because of the stomach ache. I didn't want to eat, but there was a reason for it. So at the time I was going to a new high school and my parents were divorcing and I was terribly sad and I was terrified. <laughs> and so there was a context there. And in my case, this was the 1980s. It, it wasn't explored. It was just, you have anorexia, you are this diagnosis. It didn't help that we say I'm an anorexic instead of I have anorexia, right? Mm -hmm. The language of it matters mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. And, and what happened was I became one, whether I was or not. I really learned about it from a book, from this novel. Um, and I really identified, I learned how to cut my food into little pieces and, you know, the, monitor my weight, which I hadn't been doing before. And I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't actually think I was fat until I started to learn about anorexia. And then I really adopted the key symptoms of that diagnosis. So uh, eventually, you know, it sort of petered out at that time. They didn't put uh, people with anorexia on medication. So in many ways, it really resolved itself. Um, and I'm lucky that I wasn't put on medication that early because we don't really know a lot about these medications, although I think they can be very helpful for a lot of people. Um, then when I was in my 20s, I was, I was living in New York City and I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and given Valium and sent on my way. I was diagnosed by my general practitioner, like my family doctor, just a general doctor after a 15 minute annual visit. And so it wasn't even a psychiatrist that was diagnosing me. Um, then later on, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Uh, you know, in my 30s, I was told I had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is ADHD, then obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, then ADHD and OCD with depressive and anxious elements. So it became this like soup of diagnoses. Um, and then finally, when I was in my 40s, I was told that I had bipolar disorder. And that by that point, I was uh, extremely unwell, no longer able to live independently. I could work part time, but barely. And I was suicidal for, for much of the five years I lived with my mother. And I'm so lucky to have had her. I mean, my family, they, they are just the heroes of my story, as anyone listening who may have been touched by mental illness knows that the families have it the hardest and don't get a lot of credit for everything they do. But that's my story till then. <laughs> um, and then what I discovered was that the diagnoses we receive aren't these really, you know, intractable, reliable, valid things that I thought they were. I just assumed, oh, it's like diabetes. Oh, it's like cancer. You know, someone gives you the diagnosis, that means you have it. And over the years, you know, the suffering is real. The symptoms everyone feels are very, very real, even though the diagnoses we're, we're using are really flawed. And I'll get back to that in a second. But, 
you know, I was suffering so much that I took any diagnosis someone would give me. I mean, I was like, okay, there's going to be an answer here. There's going to be healing here. Something's going to make me feel better. And it never did. I just got diagnosis after diagnosis. You know, eventually I was put on medication. And in the United States, once you're in that medication cycle, you really, it gets very, um, freewheeling. Like it gets very easy for, to go be put on one medication and then taken off that medication or put on six medications or whatever it might be. Um, but what I learned finally, I went to see a new psychiatrist. I was suicidal at the time and I didn't have a psychiatrist. I was almost out of medication and my sister just swept in and found a psychiatrist for me. I went to see him in the United States, you have a consultation uh, visit to start, and it's about 30 minutes. And then typically what would have happened was he would have proclaimed my diagnosis or said, yes, you are bipolar. And so at the end of our session, I waited for him to tell me what I was and what was wrong with me. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And it was like, what? <laughs> How could you, you know, these doctors and especially just general doctors had been telling me with so much conviction, with so much certainty, you are this, you have this, that for someone to do that, I just thought, wait a second, how can you not know? And then I thought, okay, what are these mental health diagnoses? What are they? Where do they come from? I didn't know anything about them. I'd never heard of the DSM. And so what I did is, you know, I'm a journalist. I have a PhD in English, so I love research. I geek out on that. I get, you know, very into it. And that became my lifeline. I just thought I'm going to find out everything. And what I found out was extremely disturbing. Um, so for instance, with major depressive disorder, one of the main architects of the DSM is a man named Robert Spitzer. And in 1980, he put out a version of it that really said, okay, to get major depressive disorder, you need this symptoms. He really designed the DSM that way. And I think he was very well intended. He wanted psychiatry to be thought of as a legitimate field of medicine. It wasn't at the time. And I do believe even with all the mistakes that have happened, I'm not anti-psychiatry. I think that psychiatrists do their best and we're asking them to do a lot. I mean, how do you solve problems in the brain when it has 60 billion neurons? I mean, I don't even know how you yeah. would go about that. And then what is the mind? We don't even know what the mind is. So we're asking them to do so much. And I do believe they're doing the best they can. But Robert Spitzer was asked, why do you need five of nine symptoms to qualify for a diagnosis of major depressive disorder? And he said, well, we just went around the table and it was consensus. Six seemed like too many and four seemed like too few. I mean, that's the same criteria we use yeah. today. So if you're in the United States and you see a psychiatrist or a general doctor, and he says you have major depressive disorder, that's at least what they're basing it on. Mm -hmm. So once I learned that, I started writing pathological and I really just felt like everyone needs to know this. We're getting, you know, this is not, you know, this is not what we should be doing. We should not be taking these diagnoses as gospel, which is saying something very different than not getting treatment, 100%, we need help. I needed help desperately. And in the United States, the only way to get help is to get a diagnosis. So that's a reality, they're useful because we use them. Um, but for me, I was over-identifying so much that knowing the truth provided space for me. 
it allowed me to step back and think like, who am I? Who am I without this diagnosis? Who am I without thinking of myself as bipolar, as someone with major depression, as someone with anxiety? Like, where does that fall? And so you talked about my story continuing. I'm actually writing the sequel to Pathological about how I healed and how I, mean, I know I had a serious mental illness, the, the, you know, the most extreme, which is depression with suicidality, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia and bipolar. And I know I had a mental illness and I'm not at all ashamed of that. I'm very proud to have been, you know, people with mental illness are treated as weak but they are the strongest people alive. I, I mean, heard they you are. say that. Yeah. And yeah. I thought that was a, such an amazing point. Yeah. Yeah. I always yeah. want to say that because yeah. it's, it's to be in that struggle, it takes strength. It really does. So, yeah. 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 And oh, gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you. <laughs> that was long. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. That was actually short because I'm sure it's uh, you can make it a lot longer. There's a lot there. It's a book. Um, a it's yeah. a whole book. <laughs> it's a life. <laughs> it's a whole life. Yeah. But um, let's talk a little bit about the stigma. The stigma that people with those type of names, you know, diseases like bipolar, schizophrenia, and so forth they get a you know people in society are like oof you know i don't want to deal with that or i don't know how to deal with that or you know it's it's too far away from my problems that i have to deal with that how can people help that don't know anything about it and i think one of the major things is that it's so important to have support um but i'm going to talk about that later but right now like for example for someone that doesn't know anything about that that has some known relative or or some friends that have some of that, whether it's true or not, this diagnostic is right or not, well, how can we help? It, it, it's something I, I've become a public speaker on this topic. And, and one thing I do is go into companies and talk about how do you create, how do you become a visionary um, and create, you know, a, a real, a, an environment in the workforce that is, you know, really there, where there is no stigma against mental health or mental health disorders. And one way is again, that process that I went through, which is discovering, wait a second, all these diagnoses that we have are not solid. You go in to see a psychiatrist and they try to give you the best diagnosis they can to get you the best treatment that they can. So it's really just a designation. Yet we have all these stereotypes right? Schizophrenia is the guy on the street screaming at the sky, muttering to himself. Depression is typically a woman who can't get out of bed, you know? And, and some of those stereotypes ring true. But again, what we're really talking about, which is really fascinating to me and something I love looking into, is the emotion of depression, not the diagnosis. And we all feel that. It's part of the human experience. I mean, good luck. I, I would love to meet the person who never touches it, you know, who never gets near it. And what's fascinating to me too is there's been a lot of work done on schizophrenia. And I was uh, listening to a clinician and he was talking about how we all actually have, schizophrenia is defined by hallucinations and delusions. But when you think about it, actually, those are part of the normal experience because think about when you have a song in your head that you can't get out, it's a hallucination. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, it is. I couldn't, you know, we actually all, and we all have delusions. <laughs> Let's just be, be real, yeah. you know? So, but of course those are extreme and I'm not trying to make light of either um, 
situation. Illness might be the right word or condition, you know, but if we can see them as part of the human experience, instead of diagnoses and symptoms, diagnoses and symptoms, that person's different. Something's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Then we're looking at really changing stigma and and eradicating it. Um, Because if it's part of you too, it's more, you know, we're more saying to someone, okay, you're, you're experiencing an extreme version of the emotion of depression. Understood. We call it major depressive disorder. You need certain accommodations. We're going to give you them, but it's not this, those people are, you know, different than I am. And then the other part of stigma is self-stigma, which I had a lot of, and it isn't just thinking of yourself as less than or experiencing, um, stigma elsewhere. I, I'm, I may have experienced it. I think I was honestly too ill to notice if I did experience stigma. But by thinking of myself as a diagnosis, that is self-stigma. And to really get people to, I mean, in the United States, it's become so prevalent to have a diagnosis. 46% of adults in this country will receive a diagnosis in their lifetime. That's half the country. Yeah. That's an absurd number exactly. and 20% of children and adolescents. And that number is going up since we're experiencing what's been called by the media um, and the U S surgeon general, a, a mental health crisis among teens. So those diagnoses are going up and to really, before this gets too out of control to let people understand or help them understand. And this is something I'm trying to do in my books and in my talks and and also in um, Pathological the Movement, which is a public awareness campaign that I started, is you are not your diagnosis. You are so much more than that. You know, even if you got it very young, there is proof that we can heal. There is proof that we can recover, even from schizophrenia. You can have an episode and never have one again, which doesn't mean you don't get help. And it doesn't mean you don't stay on your medication. I want to be very clear. Um, so that's that's sort of how I approach stigma and self-stigma and how we can work to really remove that from how we approach mental health and mental health disorders. My other feeling about stigma is until we are giving people care they need, the care that they need, we have no business stigmatizing anyone. I mean, in in the United States, 30% or more of those living on the streets have a serious mental illness. So that's the most extreme. Again, we aren't even giving people a place to live. How can we expect them to function well or heal? I mean, that's like just a home. So again, and then we're also um, tending to treat people, especially um, those from marginalized communities, treat them, I put that in quotation marks, by putting them in prison and in jails. Like those are our holding facilities for people who are struggling with mental illness. So again, like where, how can we stigmatize anyone when that's how we're treating them? Yeah. I think you bring an important point about identity. And actually I was thinking uh, when I was reading and, and listening about what you're saying, how for some illnesses or disorders or whatever, however we want to call them, we use the I have, for example, I have a broken bone, I have a, I have a cold, I will never say I am a cold or I am cancer, but we say I am bipolar, I am, uh, I am depressed. So curiously, for some things, we, we totally put it in our identity, while other things we don't. And, and why? It's like, why, why do we do that? Because it's this 
it's so important when you, like you were saying, when you over-identify for anything, you can use it in anything. If you over-identify with your title, with your profession, with it's going to be a problem if you don't have that. And, and if you have an illness and you over-identify, it's, it's interesting what you were saying, how it can become your, your own prophecy, right? You, you create it almost in your, you know, part of it, not, not that it doesn't exist, but that you can really take on all the symptoms and, and, you know, like when people are studying medicine and they're like, Oh, I have that illness you know, because you start reading and I have those yeah. symptoms. So I have that illness and not necessarily, you know, so, so important to distinguish. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. Yeah, it really is. You raised such a good point. And I think also just the, what's interesting about it is in the United States, we use, well, we don't all use, but there are kind of two schools of thought about that. And one is that we should use what's called person first language. So you always say people with schizophrenia, not schizophrenics. So that's kind of one view of it, right? Kind of what we were talking about. But the other view is really interesting. And some people take a lot of pride in their diagnoses. So autism is an, an example of that. In this country, the community is, I mean, they are re- they rally around their diagnosis. They've created a new term, neurodiversity. Um, and then they also, you know, so, and they get funding for their diagnosis. They feel empowered by it. So to be say, I'm autistic, for them to use that term is very empowering. So there's kind of two ways of looking at that, but I think it goes with a lot of other kind of um, sort of looking at, and you had an episode on this, but on diversity and sort of embracing what other people need and want, those people in that situation. So, you know, anyone outside of it, you know, to use someone with autism as opposed to autistic unless you are autistic and then you can do whatever you want <laughs> because it's you your know, illness. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I found interesting that you mentioned that at some point you asked not to know uh, yeah. your diagnosis said that you wouldn't use that as an excuse of whatever, or not as an excuse, but like blame everything to that diagnosis. And I thought that was so powerful. And so I don't, it's such a great idea in a way because Sometimes we can use that even to find an explanation or to become a victim of your own situation. And so that empowers you to find solutions, right? What's what's your story about that? Because I know you were talking about it and I'm talking about it now, but I love that, that approach. So it was really a very difficult switch to make. I, um, I'm writing about it right now in the new book because that was such a big moment was deciding not to not to know. I still have one. Um, and that's because I'm still on medication and I likely will be for the rest of my life. What with um, SSRIs or otherwise known as antidepressants and the mood stabilizer that I'm on, um, there is, we are, I mean, we know that you, your body develops a dependence on it. And so, I, you know, I've tried going off them. The withdrawal is brutal. I almost died. I will never, I shouldn't say never, but I, I'm not interested in trying again. So to know that, um, so anyway, in the United States, I have to see a doctor to get my prescriptions, um, you know, you know, re, uh, reissued. And what's interesting about this, and I had to change my thinking and I'll, I'll kind of get back to the diagnosis in a second, but I thought, oh, well, if I'm taking medication, if I'm not kind of like 
psychopharmologically pure or something that I must still be sick. But what I thought of was I take vitamins and I don't always have a cold, you know, I mean, you know, in some ways, like that's just the reality. Pharmaceutical companies designed, you know, drugs, these drugs in particular, they did not test them over a long period of time. They did not test how someone gets off them. And now a lot of people can't. So that's just that. So I kind of had, I did have to accept, okay, medication's a part of my life, just like omega-3s in the morning are, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And then with my diagnosis, it was the same thing. Okay, if I don't have a diagnosis, how am I supposed to heal? Because you can only heal from a diagnosis, right? But I accept that I had a mental illness and that I was healing from mental illness. But if I were to take my diagnosis as well, if I were to, you know, again, know that, let's say that, you know, my, and my psychiatrist has changed it three times that I know. <laughs> and so let's say he changed it to ADHD again. ADHD is one of those diagnoses that I don't think a human being couldn't see themselves in, you know, distractible. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's very easy to say, this is all because of my, again, there's that language, my ADHD. And again, I, you know, I don't mean to diminish the, the suffering that goes along with the symptoms of ADHD because they're real. Um, but for me, what I would have done is seen everything I felt, thought, and did in terms of a diagnosis. I mean, what a di you know, we know that a diagnosis, or I mean, this is the human condition as well, but we are our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And so I had to learn, okay, like, what are my thoughts? <laughs> Where do they, you know, how do they work? How does my brain work? What are emotions? I didn't even know what they were. I didn't know they were vibrations in my body. I didn't know how to categorize them, how they worked in my mind, how they worked in relation to thoughts. And then my behaviors, then I didn't see in the context of my thoughts and feelings. So everything, you know, I didn't really understand my the workings of my body enough. And now I've been forced to really learn all of that, not forced in a bad way, but now when I, you know, I have terrible depression and I have, you know, crippling anxiety and I have still have panic attacks and that's just who I am. I've decided, but I no longer say this is my panic disorder. And then the other problem was I would typically go to my psychiatrist, he would change medications, which just makes things far more complicated, or at least it did in my experience. And again, this is just my experience, but yeah. Do you think knowing, like you were saying, knowing more about yourself, emotions, how humans work earlier on would have helped you? Yes, 100%. And, you know, I've really, you know, I, as I said, I have a PhD. It was six years of a doctoral program, and I feel like I'm getting a PhD in emotions and thoughts. And, and how, do, how does this work? I mean, I just didn't know anything. And one thing that I think that we all, we don't know a lot about the brain. I mean, I'm not necessarily convinced that what I have, what has sort of felt true to me about how we think of thoughts and feelings and behaviors is necessarily the truth with a capital T. Who knows? They might discover something next week. But what's really made sense to me, um, one thing in terms of my thinking was evolutionary psychiatry really kind of hit me as, as feeling very, very true. It has its, you know, um, you know, downsides or reasons to be critiqued, but what it believe, what it kind of says is that, and 
many, many neuroscientists agree with this. We used to think your brain, that you were constantly reacting to the world. And now they know our brains are just prediction machines. They're in this black box called your head. <laughs> and they are just the brain. I mean, this makes it seem like a person, but the brain is trying to yeah. figure out what's next. How do I keep you alive? That's it. That's all they want. No happiness. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no love. They don't no want thriving, that. Like, no richness. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. And so I just, I thought, wow. Okay. So my brain is trying to keep me alive all the time. And I have a very good brain because it is overactive. It is seeing danger everywhere. <laughs> I mean, opening email, my brain's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, so that really rang true for me. So now when I have anxiety, I don't actually see it as a problem. I sort of thank my brain now, like, okay, noted. Thank you. You're trying to keep me alive. I do appreciate it and go about my day. And that doesn't make the anxiety necessarily meaning the emotion, like the, the really bizarre hum and vibration in my chest that I get, that's really constricting. That doesn't sound bad, but it's very unsettling. And the kind of waves of energy that I get that that is anxiety. It is coming from my brain doing its job and let's go about our day. You know, mm -hmm. that's that now being able to think of it that way instead of as a problem has just been life-changing for me. It's reframing is reframing completely the meaning of it. Yeah. 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 That's powerful. I like that. And I think it's, it's reframing anything is, is powerful because it can, uh, it, it can go from crippling you to thanking your brain for the good job that is doing that is too good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, and so how, how can, because I know now with all the, we have kind of created an HCAD world with all these phones and social media yeah. and so forth. And now for me, it's strange to hear so many young people talk about depression, anxiety, you know, and, and panic attacks easily before even they're 18. Yeah. Do you, so do you think all this social media and so forth has to do with this? Because I know it also affects, um, I work a lot with, you know, business entrepreneurs and so forth. And I see they're in the verge of like, you know, in, in between anxiety and panic attacks and so forth because of depression they're in, you know. So do you think all this social media and, and constant demand really has a trigger a lot of it? It may. I mean, I just assumed it did. Um, and then I was, you know, reading from, you know, a study done by a child psychiatrist, an adolescent psychiatrist, and he was arguing, no, it doesn't, that it doesn't have as much of a, an effect as we're kind of giving it credit, that as digital natives, they've grown up with this, they never knew anything different. And, you know, again, I, this isn't my field of study, so I, I can't say for sure. But one thing we do know is that adults spend more time on their phones than children, than adolescents do, which really? is frightening. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so here we are, like, they're bad. And then, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> but who knows? I mean, our brains are fully developed and they do know that your brain doesn't fully develop till the age of 25. So who's to say, I mean, who knows how they're even whatever amount they're on is affecting them. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I was, when I was sick, I wasn't on social media. And so mm -hmm. that was a large part of my life. So I really didn't go on it until I was in my forties. Um, really, I've only been on it for about six years. And so I don't really understand the the to-do about it because I just follow cat videos. 
And so it's like, <laughs> social media is not a problem. Like, I'm not worried about myself, you know, I don't th- compare myself, but sometimes I compare my cat to the really, you know, like sleeping <laughs> ones that never bite. But, but so I guess it's, it was never a big part again of my identity to be on there. Um, I did go on there for the book and, you know, I'm on there for the book and for my career and to reach people and connect. And that has been really wonderful actually. Um, but of course, unlike anyone, why didn't I get enough likes? You know, why didn't, you know, this happen? Yeah. But I will say that I also don't have notifications on my phone for a reason ever. They don't come up on my screen ever. I just get the little red dot, you know, and and that's that's enough. And I can check it when I have time to check it, which isn't to say I don't get addicted. I mean, they right, they say you that people on average pick up their phones like 150 times a day. I don't doubt that I'm up there. I do, I do, and yeah. I check email and and all of that. So yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to think about, but don't forget, I mean, we can't forget that depression, these, you know, anxiety, depression, all of that has been around since, you know, it's been around, we think since ancient Mesopotamia, Mm. um, when they were already, you know, treating for mental illness, certainly the ancient Greeks saw it and they thought it was because of humors in the body and, and so on. So to blame it on modernity is, or, you know, contemporary life, They've been, we've been doing that for a long time. So in the United States, we had um, in the you know early 20th century, there was something called neurasthenia. And that was essentially kind of, it was a nervous breakdown. It was depression mixed with anxiety, essentially. And they blamed it on the steam engine mm, wow. <laughs> and, and the complications of modern life, quote unquote. And so it's, it's, we've been doing that for a long time and it could be true. I mean, we are, but again, you know, you mentioned, and this is such a good point, I think social media, and I wrote a piece about this in the LA Times about how mental health awareness is backfiring. And that what we're doing is we're really, we're not making people aware of mental health. We're making them aware of diagnoses. So these kids, as you said, they know what anxiety disorder is by the time they're 12. Many of them have gotten the diagnosis. I mean, a friend of mine, her preschool class, um, half of the kids in preschool had a diagnosis. Wow. I mean, that's just like so startling. And so I do think, you know, social media is definitely contributing, if not, you know, uh, one of the main causes of that and and that they're getting, um, you know, they're doing a lot of self teens or self-diagnosing on social media. There's been a kind of trend toward, at least in the United States, toward diagnosing yourself with multiple personality disorder, which is not, I mean, it it is in the DSM, but it, I mean, everyone kind of knows it's, it's like not real or so extremely rare that you would never have it, but it's become this trend. And so it's, you know, there's no question that that is muddying the waters on how we're going to get or prevent people, young people from, again, over identifying much the way I did. Yeah, so it sounds like it needs to start when we're young to get this type of education on how we function, how, how our brain functions and how how you identify yourself with what you identify yourself so that you don't over identify with things that are not going to be useful for you. And I think that that is something we work, you know, in coaching with our clients, but I think it should start way earlier. So we get that education, you know, our PhD in human behavior. 
or even just, you know, and, and what's interesting too, is that, you know, we, we really are training kids that there's this smiley face that's happiness. And there's a sad face that's sadness as if, and this is one thing I didn't know, but we really construct our emotions based on our culture, race, gender, everything. And um, there's a woman named Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she's a neuroscientist and psychologist. And this is her area about it's um, the constructivist theory of emotion. And she says she really talks about how we do that. And she mentions in her book um, how emotions are made. One of her friends came from Belgium and she said, I can't, I can't keep up with the United States. You people are smiling all the time. <laughs> just have to be happy all the time. We don't do that in Belgium. Like, and I just thought, oh, I want to go to Belgium. <laughs> you know, not to <laughs> need to be happy all the time. Because it doesn't mean we are, right? Just because yeah. you're smiling. I mean, what's interesting is you can smile because you're afraid. You know, that, that yeah. there are yeah. different, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah, bodily true. responses. Yet we're kind of being taught this means this. And it's so clear cut. Um, it's just fascinating. And there's so much to learn. And I, I wish we would give children and teens more of that. Yeah. No, and, and I was trying to look a little bit at, at how, how things are different between, you know, like Europe and, and, and the U.S. and other cultures. Yeah. And the problem is with psychology, with mental health, the culture is such a big factor. So if you have a culture where it's more accepted, you're going to have more diagnosis, more talk, more, you know, things that expose what's going on. Whether in other cultures where it's kind of forbidden or, or you really look bad at it, you won't have statistics that are real at all because people don't talk about it, you know. So I think it's a matter that is hard to compare. I think it's important to study it and have statistics so we see where we're going but it's such a hard thing to have statistics on because it's for me so culture related. Like in Spain, until recently, if you go to a psychologist, you're sick. I mean, you're mentally sick, and that's a bad thing. Otherwise, you talk to your friends, to your family, and you solve your your emotional problems that way. So it's it's hard to talk about you know depression in in a serious way because we have to say I'm depressed when when you really are just down. You know, it's not really depression. Yeah. And, and if you hear the words like schizophrenia and bipolar, everybody runs in the opposite direction because it's like, oh God, you know, it's, and that's for yeah. life, you know, and you've yeah. got a good point that you can get healed. And I don't think that's, people have awareness of that and, and everybody thinks it's forever. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of the lessening stigma as well. Like if we knew that, yes, you can heal, then it is like the cold. That is, you know, I don't go around saying I'm someone with a cold because I had a cold once. Yeah. That, you know, I like to talk about mental health experiences because yeah. that's what they are. They are experiences yeah. and they are something that, you know, it is a period of time and what I went through, something I went through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so, and what's interesting about what you're saying is just figuring out how are we labeling suffering? Like, what is suffering? Is it a diagnosis? Is it normal? Is it something that's okay? You know, your cat um, is having fun. <laughs> my cat. I'm sorry if you can hear this. My cat is no so wanting attention that she he is he is turned on the printer. His printing. <laughs> you got a very smart cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, kind of. He's a, he's a bad cat. Is what he is. But he's so you know he's such a big part of my life that 
and this is something too that I, I think is part of what we're talking about, which is how are we also measuring success and mm-hmm. a full life and a successful life and, you know, being even just, you know, normal or great or whatever it might be. Because for me, you know, I live alone. Um, I'm, I love my, you know, I always love my job, but, you know, I've written this book, which is tremendous, but just living alone and having a cat, being able to care for another creature, no matter how bad he is, <laughs> um, when I couldn't care for myself is tremendous. Like, it's just so amazing to me. And, other people would be like, you have a cat. So what, you know, like we've got eight or whatever it is, or we've got, and I don't have children and, and I, you know, I, I never really wanted them. So that's not something I'm lacking, but I can imagine, um, you know, someone who's been through mental illness, then being able to take care of their children thinking, well, that's what I just do, but no, that's a triumph. That's a sign of healing. Like that, you know, anytime you can take care of someone. So Again, I think it's how are we categorizing suffering and how are we categorizing success, you know, and, and a full life and a good life. How should we categorize suffering? It's in the new book. I'm actually um, writing a lot about that. So we do have standards in the United States of what it means to recover from mental illness. And the standards are so ridiculously high. <laughs> I cannot even tell you. They are basically the equivalent of being a perfect human being. Like you have to be, you know, happy most days of the month. You have to be fulfilled. You have to, in every aspect of your life, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. I mean, it's just so absurd. And I thought I never would have recovered if this was, you know, what I was going on. So that is just like, you know, it is ridiculous. Um, But what I ended up doing was really looking at, okay, what is recovery going to look like for me? What is a good life for me? And and what that ended up, what ended up happening was it was actually very hard because there are a lot of things that are kind of unattractive (laughs) in our, you know, in kind of American culture and what makes you successful, unattractive about me, that meant I didn't fit in. And if I couldn't blame them on my diagnosis, what did that mean about me? Like, I really don't like to travel. I mean, I just don't. And we Americans are travel obsessed and it's about putting it on Instagram and doing the whole thing. And so like, there's kind of something wrong with you if you don't like to travel and go to this place and that place. And I've traveled a lot in my life. So I'm very lucky that I just don't feel like I'm missing out on anything, but that kind of felt like, Oh, that doesn't have anything to do with bipolar disorder or depression. It has to do with the fact that I just don't really like to travel. And I love to Look at cat videos, not exactly you know, like the sexiest thing in the world. Um, and I love my cat and just, you know, these things that are just not what we consider success and the good life, but they are to me. And I'm also a very solitary person. And I attributed that to my mental health issues, quote unquote, or, or what I was going through. But actually, I just love being alone. I really love my own company. And now I see that as a strength and before I saw it as a weakness. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's just so individual. I mean, what is it to you? I'm always so curious, like what is a good life? What is a successful life? I think, I think everybody needs to find their own definition, like you're saying. And I think also it evolves because mm-hmm. what success meant to me 20 years ago is different than what it means now. 
And it might mean different next year because something happened. You know, I went through a car accident and now walking is a success. You know, like you're saying, mm -hmm. taking care of a cat is for you a success. So I think it's a definition that people need to spend time with so that you're not chasing something that you don't even want, first of all, because maybe that's what everybody else wants or what the culture is telling you. And I think there's also a tendency when you feel different, which I think I think most of the humanity feels different, which is kind of funny. Everybody's like, I'm different. I'm like, well, that's what everybody else says. So we might have something in common and that's that we feel different. But I think once you feel different in whatever shape or form, you see too much of the opposite. You magnify the opposite. And I can give this example in the dancing world, which is where I'm at a little bit, a lot. And I have students who start dancing. And when they go out dancing, they see everybody as a professional. And I go mm. to the same place and I say, no, but you are a beginner. And so then you, everything else you see and you magnify like, whoa, you know, they are amazing. Or like you're saying, I don't want to travel. Everybody wants to travel. I know a lot of people mm. that don't want to travel, but I think when we feel yeah. that difference, we, we look at the other opposite side and we magnify with a huge glass when mostly probably the other people are like, oh my God, I want to travel and nobody wants to travel. <laughs> you know, So... <laughs> I think defining your success and defining every, almost every year in every situation is such an important thing because yeah. then you are not chasing something that is not something that you wanted and, and it's going to evolve. And the yeah. same thing for suffering, what really is suffering? Because we yeah. also not feeling is not healthy either. And that may be defined by some people as not suffering, but is it really because it's still there and you're going to face it and it's affecting you in some way. Um, so it's maybe crippling you to do something that you really wanted to do. So what is suffering? You know, is it really not feeling or is it really not doing the thing that you want to do, but you're not doing it because you don't want to feel, you know? Yeah. So. And I think for, you know, success and a good life, there's a great, we use a lot of metaphors for mental illness. I do think for me, it's different than other people because of what I went through. So one, uh, we often use the metaphor of mental illnesses like diabetes or mental illnesses like cancer. And those are well-intended because it's meant to say this is serious and, you know, mental health issues are very serious, which they are. And we're not, maybe we need to take them more seriously. But they're misleading because they're really nothing like that. We can't, we can show diabetes on a test and we can't do that with any mental health diagnosis. Um, and then diabetes is lifelong and that's not true of mental health diagnoses. But the, the one I, I love and, and some people take issue with it, but that having a mental illness or any type of psychiatric crisis is like breaking a bone. And what I didn't know is that in physical medicine, when the bone, and it was funny because you referenced this before, but uh, when the bone heals, the point of the break is the strongest part. And I love that metaphor that, that yes, it is a lot to go through, but we are stronger. At the same time, we're all going to heal differently. And so some people are going to have a limp and some people might have chronic pain and need to take medication for that. And so again, looking at it like that, we don't expect people to go back and have a bone that shows no evidence of the break 
or not to respect that, yes, this, you know, my leg or my ankle might be more tender or more susceptible to something. And so I really see that I broke a lot of bones in my body over 25 years of being in the mental health system. So I'm also very careful. I mean, I don't, and I don't see that as a bad thing, but if I had broken my leg and had some sort of steel plate or something like that, they might say to me, you can't go skiing or you can't bungee jump, you know, or whatever it might be. And so for me now, you know, I don't drink caffeine. I don't drink alcohol. All this was, was integral to my healing. Um, I don't do drugs. I go to bed at the same time. I wake up at the same time. I mean, in many ways, I live such a structured life in comparison to some people. Um, and, and that's fine for me. So again, you know, healing from mental illness or having gone through that experience, a good life will look different. We have to respect what we've been through. We have to honor it. And I really do. I honor it and, and I kind of cherish it in some ways because I would never want my life to be different now. Mm-hmm. You, you had a, a good structure supporting your family. For people that don't have that, what are tools that they can you know, go to or that you would recommend for them? I really understand not having that support because I actually was alienated from them for about 20 years. So I isolated myself. I distanced myself from them. And my mom was always the one who kind of stayed there with me. Um, but we had moments of estrangement. Um, I know that's kind of a loaded word, but moments of distance between us, you know, long periods. And so without I, I definitely spent a long time without that support. And when, you know, finally things came to a crisis, I moved back to Chicago. I moved in with my mother and then my family just stepped up and it was too bad. You know, again, it wasn't anything having to do with them. I pushed them away. And so I really, but I didn't mean to either. I just was suffering and I, I couldn't handle anything really. And so I couldn't really, I, I don't have a, I mean, I don't have close friendships um, outside of my family now, but that's kind of okay. And I've realized that's also who I am. Um, I'm just someone who gets a lot from a little bit of social contact. Um, but, you know, I couldn't really give myself in that way, um, you know, for, you know, kind of fostering friendships and, even communicating with my family. Um, but it was too bad that it took such a crisis for me to allow for help. So I would also say just to, you know, I didn't want anyone to see what a mess I was. And I, I don't mean to be mean to myself when I say that, but no. I think it's valid to say mm -hmm. that. I mean, maybe not a mess, but how how much I was suffering. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't want anyone to see that. I also felt beyond help. Um, and I was really desperate. So that it was very hard to let someone in, but I would say to people, if you can let anyone in, um, it's uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable for me to let my family in. So I think the one thing to remember is it's not going to feel good. I love, you know, I, I always hear people like, and then I went to talk to a friend and I felt better. <laughs> what? You know, when you're in crisis or in any kind of, you know, going through a mental health condition, I don't think that feels good necessarily, but it is important. So it'll feel awkward. It'll feel uncomfortable, but it will also release some of the pressure that you're under to handle it all alone. Um, if there isn't any, I mean, I don't know what it's like in Europe and, and what kind of resources there are, but 
um, or elsewhere in the world. But in the United States, we have um, now we have a mental health hotline, um, mental health crisis hotline. So it's it's really for people in crisis. But you just dial nine eight eight, and instead of nine one one, you now go to what is a suicide hotline or mental health hotline. So that's really wonderful. Um, and I don't know if you, you know, you have that there. In Spain, they do. I don't know other countries, but yeah, in Spain, they they have created recently that, especially for younger people, because um, yeah. after the pandemic, I, that was a big crisis, yeah. Yeah, and I know they have it. It started in England, so I know they have it in, in Britain. But, you know, I think also just, sometimes it can be helpful to look at what your social connections are. Um, so again, going back to social media, I mean, there's a reason I have only cat videos in my feed because <laughs> it's delightful, you know, I don't go on there. Um, so like, what is in your social media feed and what is the, you know, in that way, what kind of social contact are you having with the world? Um, you know, Facebook, there's nothing more depressing than Facebook. <laughs> I just never, I never want to be on there. You know, the metaverse frightens me beyond any, you know, anything. And so I just don't. Um, you know, some would say, but you're, you're an author and you're a speaker and you need to be on social media and maybe, you know, but it, I'd rather be healthy, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, whatever yeah. that might do to my career, supposedly, I would much rather be at peace. I think one beautiful stigma that you break is how successful you are in so many fields, having a PhD, working at university, writing for so many known magazines, writing, publishing a book. And, and then dealing with all of these, you know, because the one stigma we have is, is the one that you mentioned at the beginning is one person, once it has bipolar, it's in the street. One, one person has it, it's in the street, you know, and you are, you know, total, you know, amazing person with all of these and dealing with all of these and making it public, you know, which is also, because I think one thing that also makes it sometimes harder to to find help or reach some healing point sooner is the shame and guilt that comes with all of these uh, mental problems that that is not easy to share that who do you share with and who's going to support you and where how to heal what is really that you have it's really something that you have and then and then finding the help you know so i think um that's such amazing job that you're doing. I think it's important also to know all these other successes according to the, you know, to whatever society says that you have, you know, and, and that you have reached. And I think, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I mean, I, I did have all of, I, I have done all of that. It doesn't, sometimes I forget, but I think also it was a battle. I mean, it was really, now it isn't because I've healed and, um, you know, in some ways I put a lot of pressure on that and I wish I had, I don't wish, I don't want to regret anything, but it's possible that if I had taken time out and said, all right, let's look at this, let's give this all my attention, meaning my mental health condition or the struggle I was going through, maybe it wouldn't have taken so long. I mean, you know, that I wouldn't have been in the mental health system for 25 years. Of course, I can't know that, but I just want to encourage people, you know, that, it is hard to find the right mental health professional, but they're out there. And they, you know, I, I really believe that mental health professionals are just devoted people who want to help everyone. It doesn't always work. And that's, you know, that's just being, you know, again, we're human and, and that that's how that is. But I think also, you know, with my successes, um, I never celebrated them ever. 
And that was, I, I'm just learning gratitude and because that word always felt a little hokey to me. I was like, ah, gratitude, you know, or it felt like something your parents would say, which is you better be grateful. Yeah. Um, and now I'm really learning that practice and do it every morning. Um, and before I go to bed, I write it on a post-it, one thing I'm grateful for and, 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 and celebrating too. I um, actually got a life coach who that is like, what we do is celebrate. And I send her my celebrations every day. And that is transforming. That has been incredible. And what happened though, when I wasn't doing that is, yes, I got all those things, but they don't feel like me because I wasn't celebrating them along the way. And now I really force myself like, stop, <laughs> you know, celebrate this podcast, celebrate everything. Whereas, you know, because I was in some ways just grinding along, I, I, you know, whether or not I had a mental health condition, I think we know that when you grind along it it's, and don't take the time to really appreciate what you've done. It's, it's like, you didn't do it in some mm. ways. And how, how do you deal, for example, now you were mentioning that you still have, for example, panic attacks or still suffer from anxiety. How do you deal with that now with all this new knowledge that you have acquired over the years? So now, I mean, I, I really have learned how to, again, allow for emotions. Um, and, and so one thing I've learned is how to not push away the terrible feeling in my chest or the pit in my stomach or, you know, just the sense of agitation that I can get. Um, and for me, panic attacks are just, I'm in them every time. I don't understand how I can believe I'm dying when I've had panic attacks, you know, twice a week or something, you know, I, I never am on to it, it seems, but I had one on Sunday, a panic attack and I was at the theater and it often will happen in a situation like that. I think because my mind is, I'm not doing a lot of different things. And it's just like one thing to focus on, which is the, the play. And what I did was finally, when I could come out of it a little bit, was, oh, okay, my cheeks are numb because this is a panic attack. It's not going to go away. And we're going to just sit in here. And before I would get so nervous about how bad it was going to get, that it would make it much worse. Um, now, we don't always have that kind of awareness, but I think my awareness is getting better now that I'm practicing it. And so I can come out of it a little bit sooner, although I had one, you know, a month ago that lasted an hour, which was no fun. Um, but so just really trying to process the emotion. And, and I know some people don't like that term, but so when I have that, you know, anxiety, that vibrating constriction in my chest, it's like, okay, there it is. And trying to describe it is helpful. Um, so looking at like, what color is it and what texture is it and how does it feel? And I'd never done that before. And I, I do find that helpful now. Um, and with depression, I mean, you know, I, someone has said life is 50, 50, like you're going to be happy 50% of the time. You're going to feel positive emotions. 50% of the time you're going to feel negative emotions. That's part of being human. I think my life is like 80 positive, 20 negative, actually. I mean, it's pretty good. That's um, good, yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but I, I now say, okay, this is the 20%. This is the 50%. Here we go. It's part of being human. Um, but the other thing that I do, which may or may not be helpful for people, I mean, I'm a writer. So every morning I write down my thoughts. 
um, just in a list, just one after another. And this doesn't sound very powerful, but it is because my thoughts are so negative, <laughs> like straight out of bed. Like you're basically, they're all a different way of saying like, we're going to die, <laughs> you know, like this person doesn't like you and that's not going to work out. And no, that's not going to happen. And seeing them on the page once when i know that my brain is just looking for danger it's like oh okay we're just looking for danger okay and i crumple up the paper and i throw it away um and what i learned since doing this is that that's actually scientifically proven they gave students um, a chance to write down all their negative thoughts before an exam and then throw the paper away and those students did better than those who wrote down their thoughts and didn't throw the paper away. Oh, wow. I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah. So I have to throw the paper away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a waste of paper. I will say that. <laughs> but well, I but it's worth so. it. It's worth it. It's give you help, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's, it's interesting that um, I, I, I gave one time, one time a, a little talk about emotions and I did talk the brain like it was another entity and people would look at me like, but you're talking like a brain is like a, my mind is something else. I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to <laughs> get across that. It's really thinking all the time it's doing things all the time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's happening or that you are that, or that is, you know, what's going to happen next. No, it's just your brain is always doing something. So, and what you're doing is kind of like a meditation or getting awareness uh, at, at some point of where you are and what's, what's your, what your body is, is doing. Do you yeah. use any type of like energy tools or breathing or meditation beside the writing? So I do, I, I did a lot of meditation over the years. So I wasn't, I didn't take medication until I was in my thirties. And so before that, I really tried to heal through yoga. I practiced Ashtanga for 20 years, uh, you know, just, and then also, um, every type of meditation. I actually went to Plum Village and studied with Thich Nhat Hanh and oh, got wow. to meet him. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And, um, so that oddly, that type of meditation uh, makes me anxious. And they found that actually meditation, 60% of people have an adverse reaction to it. Um, and it, it's typically those with pre-existing conditions. So I do think even though we kind of push meditation on people as like a cure-all, I think it can be great. I'm not sure that we should say that to everyone with a mental illness, certainly schizophrenia, it's been shown to have adverse effects. And, you know, that idea of saying to someone who's perhaps in crisis, your brain is not your own. is like, no, don't say that. You know, it's not the best time to do that. Certainly it wouldn't have been for me, but I do um, do a walking meditation. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I like movement. So yoga does help and that kind of, the, you know, um, you know, that breathing is very, very, you know, settling for me. But I've started to think that actually it's just having a ritual and it doesn't even matter what the ritual is, as long as you're breathing and do, you know, doing something that's different than the rest of your life, then it almost becomes a meditation. And you're thinking about, you know, not thinking and not thinking about what you're doing. Oddly, I learned these exercises when I was in physical therapy. You just raise your leg, flex and point your foot and then lower it again 10 times on each leg. I do not have the condition that I got that for and I still do it every night and every morning. And there's something 
meditative about it. And, and just so sometimes I think we have to have a, you know, or at least I think you have to have a meditation cushion and you have to get trained by this person. You have to do that. But really we know that routine is so mentally healthy. Um, And just having that kind of moment for yourself and doing it every day um, can be so um, sort of health, healthy and, and, and giving health. Nice. Thank you for sharing. And I also wanted to touch basis on, on the fact, if you know how much of mental illnesses have to do with any biological or, you know, condition or not, because I remember I heard one time, I don't know if you know, Daniel Amen, I don't never know if I pronounce his name correctly, but he talks yeah. about brain health and he mentions how much psychologists and psychiatrists really have never seen the brain of their patients because, you know, MRIs are scared scarce 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 yes so how much do you now that you've done so much research how much do you think is related with a biological condition or not and again you know this is when i speak i'm speaking from you know the people who know and researchers and clinicians and you know people who are just sociologists who've written so much about psychiatry and the history of psychiatry so again this isn't my beliefs necessarily but we know that what happened in 1980 um, in the United States with the DSM is they really pushed mental illness is biological. It's all biological. It's totally biological. <laughs> like that was the message that was being put forth. And that's part of the reason why the chemical imbalance theory, which has since been debunked, gained in popularity. It also allowed for pharmaceutical companies to come in because if there was one thing wrong with your brain, then there was a drug to fix it. Mm. Right. So, so that it was an unfortunate. And then, you know, of course there's the question of whether or not we're over prescribing and, and that's very much the result of that. We tried in the United States, we've tried since 1980. So we're looking at 40 years. That's almost half a century to prove that any single mental health diagnosis in the DSM is biological and we can't prove it. We have not been able to prove it. And Thomas Insel, who's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, I respect greatly. He was former head of the NIMH, the National Institute for Mental Health in the United States. Um, He, during his tenure, he's come out now with a wonderful book called Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. And in it, he talks about how during his tenure, they spent $20 billion trying to prove that mental illness is biological and genetic and they came up with nothing. Oh, wow. You know, and so it's flopped. I mean, you know, almost everyone or most people have kind of admitted to that at this point, but that doesn't mean that there won't be biological markers eventually. I, I kind of have to believe that that's true. I think what most people are now adopting is that there are biological factors, there are genetic factors, there are social factors, there are environmental factors, there are personality factors. So it's really a five-pronged kind of system or, or conditions that you need to meet all five. So this idea that you could be predisposed to bipolar disorder, for instance, because your parents had it, they know they can't f- prove that. Um, but let's just say there, we do find there's a gene that may do something to predispose you to bipolar disorder. It would take you having a certain personality, having certain biological conditions, being in a certain environment, having certain social interactions 
to then show by, you know, become or, you know, show bipolar um, disorder. But I, I do think also that if we got away from diagnoses, there are certain conditions or, you know, aspects of the human condition that can become dysfunctional and become, you know, abnormal for lack of a better word and uh you know or destructive let's say manic depression i think is one of them which is what bipolar is so this idea that you go you know that some people will fluctuate between mania and depression that's been around since ancient greece if not earlier um you know psychosis has been around for a very long time depression has been along meaning the emotion so we may end up finding more biological causes for those things but because as we talked about earlier dsm diagnoses are essentially constructed they're made up well how could we possibly find a biological cause for those it's it's, it's a waste of energy and money and time and you know, what's great about Tom Insel um, is that he has pretty much apologized. He, he, his book is very much a mea culpa and, and says, I'm sorry, I should have put more money toward treatment and helping people heal. And I love that. I mean, for, for a man of his stature, for anyone <laughs> to admit wrong like that publicly, I just like, I get goosebumps. I just find him. I've also had the privilege to meet him and he's a wonderful man. And I, I just think that says so much about him. And I'm so yeah. grateful to him to, for getting, having us focus instead of what causes it, what causes it, what causes it, how do we treat it? And I know that finding the cause, maybe we could find a treatment. But one thing I write about in my book is since we know that mental illness is this wild combination of factors and every person is going to be so different there isn't one bipolar disorder there isn't one major depressive disorder there isn't one manic depression the way to heal that is going to be as individual so in my new book what i do is i really talk about how i healed like the steps i took one thing and then another and then another from physical to like not eating sugar anymore which was brutally tragic for me, you know, which sound, it made a huge difference. I mean, I'm sorry, but it did. And, and quitting caffeine made a huge difference oh, to wow. like the writing that I do to the gratitude practice. There were so many elements that went into my healing and it was a lot of work. It wasn't easy, but to heal the way I did from such, you know, a severe mental illness, it's going to take a lot and it's going to be different for each person. Yeah. And I think that also is a good point to say that it's not only one thing. Like we, we look for the one pill and like you do a lot of things. And, and I think life is about that in, in, any, in any stage that you are, in any health stage that you are, it's about, okay, so what's going to help me today to make my life better in general in, and to reach what I define as success in my life. And I think it's so important to have more than one tool and not just one thing and do it daily because i also have yeah. people close to me who are when they get the panic attack they're like okay what do i do now it's like well not now now you have to go through it you know yeah. it's what yeah. do you do before that and every day so that you can sustain a more harmonious life whatever that means to you so yeah. that you don't get those you know, crazy ups or crazy downs. And I think that that is the thing, the habits, the routines that you create so that you have a more balanced life and that helps you to live better, whatever that is your definition. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's been so important. I mean, I think it's also important to look at when, you know, again, I'm doing all this research for the new book. And what's interesting is in the early 19th century in the United States and also in England, um, we had asylums, which we think of, you know, lunatic, quote unquote, asylums. Yeah. And, and the public ones were horrific. Um, but the private ones that only served 30 to 40 patients and were idyllic and had these beautiful grounds that the patients tended themselves and they had libraries and music rooms and everyone had their own room and tall ceilings, they had a very high recovery rate. And there's a reason, you know? So again, just looking at when did we achieve higher rates of recovery and what were we doing right then? Um, I have to say having a place to heal is just everything. And, and, yeah. and, you know, I think having a home is so important, even if you aren't healing from mental illness, it's just crucial. Our environment makes such a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think now we have even more tools because everything is much more open, you know, to things like breathing and all these things. And I recently heard, I don't know if you know, Donna Eden, she works a lot in energy healing and she sees energy, you know, and she's an, a huge advocate to work also on the energy pathways, you know, like the chakras and all how the energy is flowing through you, because she says that affects your stability in, in your mind a lot. And so many times people that are diagnosed, they just have their energies completely screwed and they just need to, you know, so I think there's so many things we can do today. So it's important to educate ourselves. And I think that's so interesting. I don't think in terms of energy because I'm not educated in it that much. I mean, I did, I have read about it and, and read some of it, but I think that in some ways, the way I look and looking at emotions is also energy work, mm -hmm. that it's similar because one thing I, I have noticed is that when I have that vibration in my chest and it's the anxiety, yes, I can carry it with me, but when it's been day after day after day, often there's a panic attack around the corner, mm. you know, that, that I do notice certain things like that. And, and sometimes what's interesting is for some reason, maybe it's from when I uh, was sort of a practicing uh, anorexia, I, when I weigh myself, when I want to weigh myself, I know I'm anxious because it's a way of like, am I okay? You know, in the United States, women, people socialize as women where you know, what your body should look like is, is absurd. But so there's something about that too. That's like, I think what I'm trying to say is finding out signals in your own life that are just so different and individual that you might be able to clue into, oh, okay, this is probably some anxiety starting. Am I doing too much? let me cancel this. Let me take some time out. Let me, you know, whatever it might be. And, and finding those early cues, like you were saying. That is crucial. Yeah. That is so important. And I think we don't allow ourselves to, to have that space sometimes because of the demands, sometimes because we think our bodies can take everything and yeah. we're, I, I can do this. I can do this just one day more, you know, what's, whatever I need to push hard because I have this deadline or that deadline and then I'll rest and then it's too late, you know? And I think we have to be able to honor our bodies too and know where is our limit um, yeah. for health, you know? So physical health and mental health, yeah. What, what is, I, I, keep, I keep, keep talking, but I think we've gone over the time. <laughs> but um, what is one change you want to see in the world? The one change I want to see in the world is 
Well, there's too many, but one would be that everyone does in the United States and wherever else the DSM is, it knows what a mental health diagnosis is and what it isn't, what it's useful for and what it's not useful for, so that we use it to the best of our advantage and to empower ourselves instead of to limit ourselves or self-stigmatize. That I think would do a lot. I mean, I think everywhere I would love to see more of an emphasis on mental health conditions, mental illness, mental health diagnoses, however you want to look at it, is not necessarily lifelong. Not necessarily. It doesn't mean everyone will heal. It doesn't mean that healing is even better than not. I mean, I don't want to put that kind of make it seem as though someone has failed if they don't heal. As I, as we've talked about, it's such a you know, individual mix of elements that cause someone to go into a psychiatric crisis, how could we expect everyone to heal? It's just going to be different for each person. So I'd love to see more of an emphasis on healing, that every discussion about mental health also talked about healing and that we can. So two. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time, for the work that you're doing, for everything that you're doing for mental health. And uh, and I think the work that you do is beautiful. And I hope everybody reads the book. I will put all the information on the notes so they can reach you and they can find your book. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. That was such a lovely conversation.